Hey everybody, Pastor Dan here. January is Stewardship Month at Brockport First Baptist. Whether you're a long-term member of our church or someone who's new, we'd ask that you consider supporting the work we do financially. You can give a one-time donation and set up automatic giving through our website, brockportfirstbaptist.org give. And if you're someone who already supports us financially, we'd love for you to turn in a pledge card to help us plan and budget for the year ahead. Pledge cards are being mailed out in mid-January, and they are due back at church by the end of the month. Thank you so much for your support. Enjoy this week's recording. You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our reading today is Acts 2, 14 through 36. You can find this in the Pew Bibles on pages 885 to 86. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having released him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on the throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Bridget, for that reading. I want to start off with a poll today, uh, which is a little different, I know, but it'll be okay. Um, I'm going to ask you all a question, and I want you to answer honestly, all right? Um, this, this is a judgment-free zone. We good? We good with this? Okay. Put you on the spot right away. <clears throat> Here's a question. How many of us can honestly say that we tracked with everything that was just read? Crystal clear. Okay. Got one or two people. I, I actually love this odyssey. This is great. This is great. Um, okay. There's more options. How many of us, you tracked with some of it, right? Like you could, you could maybe follow most of it, but there are definitely some parts where your mind wandered, you, you blacked out a little bit. Okay. All right. That's, that's most of us. This is good. This is good. Um, third option, how many of us you listen to that reading, and immediately after, it's just like, I have no idea what was just said. Like, no clue at all. It was in one ear. I couldn't follow. A few of us. Thank you for your honesty. This is awesome. Um, hands down, if anyone's still got a hand up. Full disclosure, it took me three readings on this passage before I finally tracked with it. I had to read this one three times this week before it was like, oh, okay, I get, I get what's going on here. I get what Peter is saying. Three times, and this is my job. Like, I, I study this stuff. <clears throat> the Bible's hard, you guys. It's really easy to get uh, frustrated and feel defeated when we crack open this book and aren't quite sure what it's saying. I, I think a lot of times in church, most Sundays really, we read the Bible, and then I just come up here and I start talking and, like, we don't pause to acknowledge how tricky this is. This is difficult. The Bible is not an easy book to read. It's super long, for one. Like, where do you start? It's old. Uh, the texts in our Bibles range anywhere from 2,000 to more than 3,000 years old. That's really old. We think Shakespeare is hard to read, and he was writing his stuff like 400 years ago. It's got nothing on the Bible. The Bible can be confusing, and it's okay to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that more often. I want to talk to you all about the Bible today and how we read the Bible. And I want to do that by looking at how these first Christians read the Bible. I want to talk about how Peter is reading the Bible in this speech he gives in Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's really more of a sermon. Peter is preaching in this passage, which makes this a sermon about a sermon. Which, it's like Sermon Inception. Um, no one saw that movie? It's all right. If you didn't see that movie, it's okay. It's, don't worry about it. Uh, but Peter, Peter gives this message on Pentecost. We talked about Pentecost last week. Um, it's this Jewish holiday, uh, but specifically in sort of the history of the church, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came upon the first Christians. They, uh, they got little tongues of fire over their heads. They started speaking in other languages. They go out into the streets, and there's people gathered from all over the world who all of a sudden hear these Galilean peasants speaking in their native tongues. It was wild. Some of the people in the crowd are amazed by this. Uh, many even became Christians, while the rest are like, ah, they're just drunk. 
just a bunch of drunk people babbling, which is a good reminder that if you follow the Holy Spirit, some people might think you've been drinking. Um, But that's when Peter steps up, and he starts preaching. Acts 2, beginning in verse 14. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. I love it. That's his argument. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. They're not drunk. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter is preaching. He gets a little hellfire and brimstone there at the end, which is awesome. Um, Peter's preaching a sermon on uh, some verses from the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. Joel is uh, one of the prophetic books from the Old Testament. It's a pretty short book. It's also a super random book. We don't read Joel very often. Um, Joel was written at a time when the Jewish people were facing persecution. And the prophet Joel brings a message of hope to the people. He tells them that if they look to God, if they turn to God, if they trust God for deliverance, then God is going to rescue them. But more than that, God is going to send his spirit on them. The spirit of God will indwell them and purify them. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. The spirit of God is going to come to cleanse these people and rescue them from their oppressors. We following the story so far? Okay. Here's the tricky part. All that stuff Joel was talking about, the the promised deliverance and that persecution that was going on in Joel's day, that happened about 400 years before the time of Peter. That promise of deliverance Joel was offering had already come true. That time of persecution had ended back in Joel's day. Which means that Joel is not making a prediction here about some distant future. Like, he's not saying someday there's going to be a guy named Jesus, and uh, he's going to die, but then he's going to come back from the dead, then he's going to float up into heaven, and then all his friends are going to be hanging out in a room, and tongues of fire are going to appear over their heads, they're going to start speaking other languages. That's not the message of Joel. There isn't like a one-for-one prediction fulfillment happening here. Joel said this thing, and look, it's finally come true. That's not what Peter is saying. It's not what he's doing here. What Peter's doing is he's using this poem about something in the past to say something new about what's happening in his present. He's remixing it. He's reinterpreting that. I can tell that's way too abstract, though, and I probably lost just about all of you, right? Yes, I like the nods. Very good. Honesty, this is awesome. This is not a proof text. Peter's not saying... Joel predicted a thing, and it finally happened. Boom, boom. Peter's saying something more like, remember what happened in the time of Joel? 
Remember that story from our past when God sent his spirit and delivered our ancestors? That same story is playing out today, only now we're part of it. We are now a part of the story. Does that kind of track a little bit better? Okay. Peter does the same thing uh, with the next couple of quotes. He quotes from Psalm 16, and he says that the words of the psalm are fulfilled in Jesus. I want to read Psalm 16 to you kind of in context just so you can see uh, what this looks like. I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body also rests secure, for you did not give me up to Sheol. That's like Hades, the underworld, right? You did not let your faithful one see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I would submit to you again that this passage isn't actually predicting anything. It's not talking about the future. This is a poem about God's faithfulness. I keep the Lord always before me. Because of that, I rest secure. God is not going to lead me to destruction. In your presence, there is fullness and joy. You have shown me the path to life. The poet here, the psalmist, is praising God for God's faithfulness. They're not predicting anything. Peter is not using this as a proof text that proves something about Jesus. That wouldn't have made any sense. What he's doing is he's using this poem to say something new about Jesus. He's using these ancient words written hundreds of years before he was born to say something about his own day. Peter reads the Bible like he's actually part of the story. That's the shift here. That's the mind-blowing thing. Peter reads these words written centuries before he was born like they're actually talking about the things that are happening in Peter's day. He reads it like he's part of the story. Are we kind of following this at this point? Okay, good nods. Awesome. This is radically different from how most Christians read the Bible, you guys. We do not typically read the Bible like we're part of the story. Uh, We usually look to the Bible for answers. I'd say that's kind of the number one way the Bible gets used today. Um, When we're facing a challenge or if we need a word of encouragement, uh, we're facing some ethical dilemma or we're in like a theological argument and we need a verse to prove our point, that's when we turn to the Bible, or more likely we Google it, uh, and we find a proof text that we can use to hammer the other person, right? And to feel better. That's reading the Bible like an answer book. In our church, like here, we tend to analyze the Bible a lot, right? Which is totally my fault. I got to own this one. Um, We dissect the Bible. We break it down. We talk about the context, what was going on back in the day. We handle the Bible in this church the way a kid in biology class handles a frog, right? (laughs) Like, like that's, that's how we tend to approach the Bible. It's a very intellectual church. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like, you can, you can learn a lot about a frog by cutting it up, right? Like, like oh, look, if I move this tendon, the, the leg kicks. Sorry, sorry, was that too graphic? I'm sorry. I practiced that in front of a mirror. Um, no. <clears throat> but here's the thing. 
I don't think most kids in biology class are transformed by the frog. The frog doesn't challenge them. It doesn't speak to their hearts. It doesn't move them to change. There's no relationship there. If all we do is dissect the Bible, analyze it, tear it apart, try to pull answers from it, it is never going to transform us or speak to our hearts. These first Christians approached the Bible in a very different way. They saw the Bible as the story of God and God's people, a story that they were part of and participating in, a story they were living out. Think about how we talk about maybe the story of our country or the story of our church or the story of our families as a story that we're still in, that's still being written. That is how they read the Bible, as a story that was still being written. And I've got news for you guys. We're a part of that story too. The story of God and God's people is not over. We're still in it. So with the time we have today, (laughs) I want to try to do two things. And this is hilarious because this is not going to happen by 11 o'clock. First, I want to try to summarize briefly the story of the Bible (laughs) Um, so that we have a handle of kind of the, the broad strokes. And then I want to talk about some ways, some really practical ways we can actually approach this, the Bible and read it as if we're part of the story. Does that sound like a plan? Okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's dive in. The Bible, in brief. <clears throat> I'm going to think about this. I'm a theater kid. I don't know if we have any other theater kids in here. I find Jolene awesome. Other theater kids, good. I find it helpful to look at the Bible as like a play with different acts. Okay, so this is kind of how I've organized this. And the Bible begins as many stories do, in the beginning. Act one, creation. We meet a loving God who creates the world, who creates the universe out of love. God stitches together the cosmos. God fills the earth with life. God calls it all good. This God we meet in the opening pages of the Bible is a relational God. God craves relationships. I would even say God needs relationships. God is looking for other beings to share God's love with and to partner with God in caring for the cosmos. So God makes human beings. God creates us in God's image as relational creatures, and God invites us to be God's partners in caring for the earth. And God calls it all good. That's page one of the Bible. Act two we uh, Christians often call the fall. Creation rebels, or more specifically, we rebel. Human beings rebel against our creator. We break relationship, try to empower and enrich ourselves. The Bible tells a number of stories that capture this idea. You've got Adam and Eve eating from the one tree they were told not to eat from. Uh, You've got Cain, who in a jealous fit of rage murders his brother Abel. There's the Tower of Babel, which is a story about how the first human empire used slave labor to build a monument to itself. All these stories pointing to the exact same thing, and it's our propensity for violence, selfishness, greed, the way we tend to break relationships, how we will exploit anyone to get what we want, other human beings, the earth, even God. 
if it benefits us. And that brings us to Act 3. There's five acts, by the way, so we're making, we're making good progress. Act 3 is Israel. <clears throat> God launches a plan to rescue creation. God chooses the family of a guy named Abraham. He tells them that he's going to bless his descendants, turn them into a nation, and then through Abraham's descendants, God is going to bring blessings to the whole world. God's going to bring a Savior who's going to rescue the earth. The Old Testament is the story of that family, the Israelites. All the stuff we read about in the Old Testament, the kings, the prophets, the heroes, it's one big unfolding story of a family God is working with to try to rescue creation. Of course, that family also rebels because they're human. They're just as messed up and selfish as all the rest of us. And so God enters the story through this family. In Act 4, God enters the family of Abraham in the person of Jesus. God becomes a human being. God takes on flesh, as it said in the Gospel of John. Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life. He attracts a following. He teaches people to love their enemies and to heal broken relationships, start to reverse the fall. He welcomes outsiders, heals diseases, casts out demons, calms stormy seas. The powers that be see Jesus as a threat because this kingdom of peace he represents is a challenge to their kingdoms of power. So they kill him. They crucify him. God in human form becomes the victim of our human violence. Jesus takes all of our selfishness, our wrath, our envy, our sin. He takes it unto himself, and then he takes it down to the grave with him, and he buries it there. He leaves it there. This is how Peter puts it in our reading for today. Fellow Israelites, listen to what I say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having released him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. Jesus defeats sin and death when he rises on the third day. The tomb is found empty. He tells his disciples to go out and spread the good news, and he gives them the Holy Spirit, those little tongues of fire, to empower them for that work. Are we still with this? We good? Okay. It's a lot. That brings us to Act 5, <clears throat> the church. By the way, the act we still live in, just so we're keeping up, this is our act. Jesus' followers go out from Jerusalem. They start spreading the good news to all the world. The story of God and God's people is no longer a story about one family. Everyone is invited into the story. Everyone is now a part of God's family. This good news is for the whole world. It becomes a story for all people, a story that we still live in. How is that for a summary of the entire Bible? Got through it. Good. You can clap. It's fine. All that to say, reading the Bible might not be about finding the right answers. Way more important is finding ourselves in the right story. 
when we approach the Bible. The Bible gives us a narrative that can reshape our lives if we let it. And there are some very practical ways we can do that. So let's talk about that. Let's end on some of these practical ways to approach the Bible. Um, If you want to read the Bible like you're part of the story, the first step is to know the story. Like, that's really helpful. Um, Memorize those five acts. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church. I think that to myself sometimes when I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, where the heck am I? It's super helpful to have that framework. Just knowing that structure and like where you're at when you read part of the Bible makes the Bible so much more accessible. Uh, Maybe you find yourself in the Old Testament and you're like, what is with all this violence? What is all this terrible violence doing in my Bible? Well, is it a fall story? Is it showing us the terror and the horror of human violence? Is it part of Israel's story and showing us the struggle of God's people actually trying to be faithful with God? Just having that framework makes it easier to locate yourself. Uh, Maybe you're in the New Testament reading about the church, conflict between the disciples, Paul reaming out some church somewhere about how they're not doing things right. That sounds like a lot of churches I know. That sounds like our time. This Jesus thing is tricky. Just being able to locate yourself in that narrative makes the Bible infinitely more accessible. That's one thing we can do is know the story. Um, More importantly, though, is to actually read the story. Read the Bible, you guys. I'm not going to take a poll and ask who here actually reads the Bible. It would be too depressing. Um, But read the Bible. You don't have to tackle the entire thing. That's the good news. It's not a race. Pick one book from the Bible and start reading. Get absorbed in the plot. Get absorbed in the lives of the characters. Read the Bible like you would read any other story. Get into it. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, and this is something I recommend uh, for anyone who follows Jesus, I would recommend starting with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four books about Jesus in our Bibles. They're right in a row. Go to the table of contents. Can't miss it. Um, And I know I've said this in at least a dozen sermons. I feel like this is like a monthly thing. Read the Gospels, read the Gospels, read the Gospels. But it bears repeating. As followers of Jesus, we should be reading the Gospels. Put a Bible next to your bed in a translation you find somewhat readable. Stick a bookmark at the Gospel of Matthew, and then either at night before bed or in the morning when you wake up, just read a little bit of the Gospels. A couple sentences, a page, a chapter. Again, it's not a race. Just put yourself in the story. After you knock out Matthew, read Mark, then read Luke, then read John. It could take you a a few months to go through it all. It could take you 10 years. Doesn't matter. Get in the story. Another approach while we're reading the Bible is to meditate over it. Pray over it. When you hit a section that you don't understand, go back and reread it a bit slower. Then sit with a cup of tea and think on it. Go for a walk that's meditating on Scripture. Take your confusion in the story to God. If we meditate on this, things are going to open up. We're going to see stuff we missed before. God is going to do stuff in us as we read this story. Use your imagination when you read the Bible. 
Read the Bible imaginatively. I like to imagine myself as a character in the story. Don't always imagine yourself as Jesus, though. That's something to talk to a therapist about. Um, But like, when you read the crucifixion account, imagine you're one of the women at the foot of the cross. What do you see? What do you hear? What does Jesus look like? What is he saying to you? Put yourself in the story. Imagine you're one of the male disciples hiding in a room somewhere. What are you thinking? What are you praying about? What are you feeling? If you're the thief on the cross or the soldier next to it, go in those different characters and meditate on that. Put yourself in the story. These are all different ways to imagine ourselves in the story, to ground ourselves in this story until we start to see it as our story. Because I guarantee the more you do this, the more you read it, the more you meditate on these stories, you are going to start to see your life as a part of God's story. These centuries-old words are going to start to reframe your life. You're going to be challenged to love your neighbors, to heal broken relationships, to turn away from violence, and to see all the challenges of the world around us a lot differently. I talk about immigrants and refugees a lot in here. That's because most of the characters in our Bibles are immigrants and refugees. Um, Our heroes in the faith, whether it's Moses, David, Abraham, Ruth, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, at some point in the story, they are refugees. How can we ignore the refugees in our own midst? How can we mistreat them if we're part of this story? I talk a lot about criminal justice reform. It's because I follow a savior who was failed by the criminal justice system. Jesus was publicly executed. There was just a public execution days ago in the news. That should move us if we're part of this story. Especially because Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. Remember the beats of this story. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church. Put a Bible by your bed and start reading. Pick a book. Meditate on it. Pray over it. Imagine yourself in the story. If you open your heart and your imagination to being formed by the Bible, God is going to honor that, and it can absolutely change your life, just like it did for Peter and the first disciples. Let's pray. God, help us to read and engage with Scripture the way Peter did, the way these first Christians did. Not as an answer book that helps us win an argument or a historical text to be analyzed and dissected, but God, help us to see ourselves in this story. Help us to root ourselves in it until we become part of it. Jesus' name, amen.